Welcome to Little Detours with Regina Brett, where we find meaning and even a little bit of magic in the mess of life. Thanks for joining me. I'm your host, Regina Brett. We're all struggling right now to protect ourselves and our families from the coronavirus. We're washing our hands until our skin hurts. We're keeping our social distance. What more can we do? We'll find out today how to boost our immune system and improve our health and our lives through food and not the Oreos I've been pounding down since this happened. Our guest today, we have Dr. Michael Roizen. He served as the Cleveland Clinic's first chief wellness officer from 2007 to 2019. He's the founding chair of its Wellness Institute. And that was a big deal back in 2007 for a major healthcare institution to focus on prevention and wellness. Dr. Roizen serves as the Cleveland Clinic as chief wellness officer emeritus and is a professor at the Lerner College of Medicine, the Cleveland Clinic at Case Western Reserve University. He's certified in internal medicine and in anesthesiology and served 16 years on the United States Food and Drug Administration Advisory Committees. He's written numerous bestsellers, and I think I've read them all, worn out a dozen pink highlighters marking all the pages. Dr. Roizen has appeared regularly on Oprah, Today, and Good Morning America. You can listen to him every week on You, the Owner's Manual podcast at RadioMD.com and iHeartRadio. He and Dr. Memonaz co-author a daily column syndicated to over 100 newspapers, translating scientific reports into steps we can all take to stay healthy. We're going to talk to him today about how to stay healthy during this global pandemic and about his latest book, What to Eat When, a strategic plan to improve your health and life through food. Mike, thanks for joining us. Regina, it's always a privilege. I think of you as one of the great writers and interviewers of all time, so it's my privilege. I'll pay you for that later. <laughs> so, Mike, I saw you on Facebook and you had a vacuum bag as a mask. I, I thought that was great that you could laugh during this time where there's a lot of crying and a lot of grief and a lot of struggle. But we got. So Did you bring I, it? With you? I do have it here, if you will. And it's it's really because one of my friends, someone who lives in Cleveland, has a company in both China and the United States that makes vacuum cleaner replacement bags, does 95% of the vacuum cleaner replacement bags for Walmart. And he said, how can I help? And he figured out that he could, by putting a different layer in there, a N95 layer, make, quote, N95 masks for the masses. And as of today, he's producing 500,000 of these a day through his vacuum cleaner replacement magazines. He shortened it up. I don't have one of the current best style ones, but he shortened it up. But actually, this has a value, Regina. I got to show you. It's got a big pocket in here, and that allows you to breathe much easier through this mask that is a N95 than through the usual N95 that's close to your face and difficult to breathe through or exercise through. Well, that's a, t- that's a tie for the mask I saw. Somebody had a bra with a big cup over their face as a joke. So. But uh, let's talk a little bit about, for you, with this coronavirus. I'm sure in your medical career you've seen nothing like this. I wonder for you personally, how has this changed your own behavior? You know, the other than the isolation, which all of us are going through because of the physical distancing we're going through, it also has caused me to reevaluate what I want to do in life. Um, and what I want to do with the rest of my life, if you will. And then the the other thing is I start uh, networking with a lot of people who I haven't networked with in recent times to make sure they're doing well. So 
a lot of the friends, I have a friend who, uh, Dirk Wales, who writes children's books, who I literally hadn't talked to in two or three years, who uh, he called me up one day. And so we're talking every other night now or every night um, regularly. So it changes who you network with. You network with some people who are um, what you would call in your loose network. I like that. Well, you've done quite a bit with your life and so much of it has focused on wellness and prevention. So let's talk about, you know, we're all washing our hands and keeping distance, but how do you really boost your immune system? You posted a few things on Facebook about really taking good care of yourself, basic things, how to eat better, exercise. What are some of the key things right now when we talk about our immune system to really make it as strong as we can? So the key with your immune system, it turns out we've learned from how do you fight colds or flu? How do you reduce those in the past? Or how do you get more success when you get an immunization? And with immunizations, I was really surprised when you looked at the data. This is 10 or 20 years ago. I looked at the data and it said there were really three really important things with immunization. One is getting a good night's sleep for a week beforehand. So sleeping seven to eight hours instead of, I used to sleep three to five hours and I wondered why I was still getting minor, uh, I wasn't getting any major flu, but you'd get minor uh, flu episodes. And it probably was because I was, and so I started sleeping. The second thing is to get proper nutrition. So taking a multivitamin and you want to make sure you've got a balanced diet, if you will, for the seven days beforehand. And I'll get into nutrition in a second because there are some really keys in that area. And the third is not over-exercise. So if you've got a period of time, I'm going to get the shot on Monday, and this goes for our vaccines as we come, if we get a vaccine for coronavirus, which all of us think we hope we get and think we will get, and it'll probably be rolled into the normal flu vaccine. But Assuming that you want to not overexercise right beforehand, marathon runners have, and anyone who does more than about 20% more than their usual has a increased infection rate, increased colds and flu for the three weeks after they do that episode of exercise. Now on food, it is avoiding things that cause inflammation, simple sugars, simple carbohydrates, added syrups avoiding red and processed meats, avoiding egg yolks and um, cheese, if you will, things that cause inflammation and change your bacteria inside your gut that causes inflammation. And then more cruciferous vegetables are the basics. Um, and then you've got to say, am I getting enough vitamin D? Am I getting enough vitamin C? We don't have really solid data on those things like that and elderberry and zinc lozenges, but we have some data on them for common cold, not for the, the, the influenza. So it's really eating healthy that you should do all the time. And if you have extra time, what you want to do is gradually increase your exercise status and do more and more healthy things. So it is use this time to learn how to cook healthy. Learn this time to find a few foods that are healthy that you love. So take a variety of different foods that you don't usually eat, if you will, and try and see how you can eat with them. 
Now, I love your most recent book you wrote with Dr. Michael Crepane, What to Eat When. And I think it's so important because right now we're kind of eating the wrong thing all the time from what I hear of my friends on Facebook. And you talk about in the book, what to eat when you're stressed, when you're hangry, which is hungry and angry. What about in this time of coronavirus? You talk about the three P's to eating, plan, prep, and plate. How do we actually implement those three things? So the planning is what do I want to try to eat? What do I eat? What, how do I eat healthy? The prep is, okay, let's get it in the house and I want to prep it so that I can do it. So, um, for example, if you, I think soups are a great thing to go to. There are a number of reasons, and we can talk about that from a wellness and longevity standpoint long term. But soups are a great thing. And you, but you can make soup and freeze it or put it in the refrigerator and have it last four weeks. So that's the prep. And then plate it, you want to make it beautiful or you want to make it a so right now you could eat if you're at home you can and especially if you're working from home you and I both work from home a lot so if you're working from home you know the refrigerator is just down the corridor you could really eat there or around the corner you can eat there uh, you can eat food almost constantly but what you want to do is say I'm going to eat three meals and if you're going to have snacks too and and soups are great, both meal and snack. And so you could um, do this and have the soup there and be able to use that. But you can make a, a week's worth of soup on a Sunday, especially a vegetable soup, uh, cutting all the vegetables, putting it in and have it for the full week and even put little parts in a in cups that you freeze and have it so that you can have it multiple times so that you can make five or six, you can take a Sunday and plan it, make five or six different soups that you want to try and then put them in the freezer so you can have them for the next month. So my big question is who actually does this in your house? You or your wife, Nancy? (laughs) So Nancy does it the majority of the time. I do it on weekends. So this weekend I, I, I cooked on uh, Saturday and Sunday and then we almost always have start, uh, and, and I almost now, um, since we learned the what to eat when strategy, we usually just have salads for dinner. So either of us, I mean, it's not hard to make a great salad as long as you have a favorite uh, set of greens that you like, whether it's uh, iceberg or romaine or more fancy greens that you add in there and with a few vegetables, et cetera and dressing and, and an avocado or and tomatoes, it's pretty easy to make salads. So um, whoever gets home sooner, and believe it or not, for the first time in our life, for the last year, I've been getting home before she has. So I've been doing the majority of salad prep. I like that. I like the dual duties. You know, in your book, you talk about the Ten Commandments. And uh, the, let's go over the first three. Eat when the sun is out, which is kind of never in Cleveland. So I wonder, you mean eat in the morning, eat during the daylight hour? Eat when, eat, uh, when I'm in Cleveland, I say eat when the sun is supposed to be out. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, um, but in any case, the, the point is that we, our body is programmed over whatever it is, centuries and decades and Uh, millennia, if you will, since we came to eat when the sun is out. 
it's only in the last 150 years that we've had electricity to be able to eat any time of day or night. And so we traditionally ate when the sun was out. So a calorie in the morning is less of a calorie than a calorie in the evening because of our hormonal changes that are governed. So almost everyone knows you've got a melatonin uh, secretion that is in the evening, which comes when the light goes down, when the blue wavelength light goes down, and that gets you set for sleep. Well, there are hormonal changes that the light causes that we only recently have learned that changes how you use food. So you're much more able to use food efficiently in the morning before 2 p.m. than after 2 p.m. And as you know, one of my favorite studies in the in the stories of the Spanish women who were trying to lose weight, they both got the same number of calories. One group got before 2 p.m. the 70% or 80% of their calories. One group got it after 3 p.m. The group that got it before 2 p.m., same number of calories, same goals, same exercise pattern. The group that got it before 2 p.m. lost 25% more weight. And it wasn't a small amount of weight. It was a large amount of weight they lost in addition. So the point is, um, eat when the sun is out is much better than eating after 7.30 p.m. Yeah, one of your rules or tips was to eat 80% of your daily food intake by 3 p.m. I feel like that's when the big struggle is. You hit 3 o'clock and you want to start snacking. And then before you go to bed, you want to start snacking. And too many people, I find, or myself included, sometimes we're eating out of boredom or, you know, stress for the next day. And at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock, you're eating something and you're going right to bed. So that's the worst thing is to eat and go right to bed because your body handles that as, ah, I should store that as fat. And that's what happens. So you process that because of the way insulin works in your body to get fat. Because you don't need the calories, so the body says, the muscle says, I don't want that, you take it, and the fat cells take it. And so the worst thing is, and, and one of the best things, you know, your your parents probably did this, they took a walk after dinner. Well, that meant they ate early enough to take a walk while the light was out, usually. And so you want to finish eating. So I, my first meal today and, and almost every day is at 11 a.m. So I do what is called a intermittent fast of every day where I'm trying to develop a little ketosis before 11 a.m. And then I try and finish by 7.30. Um, and if I, if I snack after uh, that, it is on celery. I love celery, so it, it's virtually no calories. So if I get hungry, but it is essentially trying to reset your day so that you finish that last. We have red wine. I have red wine. My wife has white wine as a toast in the as dessert to our salad in the evening, if you will. And we try and do that by seven p.m. To, to, and finish by seven thirty. So I try and eat in a eight or eight and a half hour window and not eat um, in 15 and a half or 16 hour window. And that's one of the keys. So, but it is to have three hours of non-food before you go to bed. 
what you find if you do that four days, and that's one of the tricks in, in a what to eat when, when we, the reason we felt compelled to write that is there were animal studies about 10 years ago, but it was only in the three years before we wrote it that there were human studies. And what it showed was if you did this for four days in a row, one, you slept much better, two, you had more energy during the day, and three, within about five, four to five days, you don't feel hungry at night. So you don't want to, you don't feel like you want a snack. We're about at the halfway mark in the show. We're talking to Dr. Michael Royce. And I just want to pause for a minute and thank you for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. I know you have many podcast choices and I'm grateful you chose to listen to mine. Mike, you talked a little bit about the sugar. Everyone should listen to every episode <laughs> of the of yours, Regina, even your past ones, because they're really so good. Are your sister? Let's talk for a minute about the sugar in the immune system, because that's one of my key things is in this time of quarantine and uh, social distancing, it's almost like since we can't go out, we want a little bit of reward or entertainment. And I know a lot of people are eating more junk food, sugar, maybe drinking a little more alcohol than they should. How do we not use food as our go-to for comfort right now? It seems like that's our... Oh, well, it, it is entertainment. As you said, it's not real food. So <laughs> you said, how much should I be entertained Have at this time? you looked at my refrigerator? No. <laughs> it is purely entertainment. So you've got to understand that. Actually, Dr. Sukal taught me that phrase. Um, she's pretty darn good at this area. But the the point is that what you want to do is establish a regular schedule. So if you will, I won't tell the audience at what time we're recording this, but it is during when the sun is out, um, as you would expect. But I have a regular schedule. I get up at 5 a.m. I do X things. I don't eat till 11. I, I have a set th- group of things I want to read before I start you know, seeing patients or whatever at 9 a.m. And so I have a regular schedule. And I know when I'm going to eat and that I'm going to eat more protein early and uh, likely salad and, and veggies later on. And I, I just actually love that routine. But it is a routine because otherwise you're likely to say, hey, I've got all this time. I ought to entertain myself. Where the, uh, okay, where's the cinnamon, pre- <laughs> where are the cinnamon pretzels? Right. And so uh, you can uh, the cinnamon pretzel, the cinnamon isn't bad. The whole wheat pretzel isn't bad. But very few of us eat the cinnamon without sugar and a regular size and a regular non whole wheat pretzel. Let's talk a minute about routine, because for pretty much everybody or at least 80 percent of the population, the routine was thrown out the window. People are working from home. They've got their kids they are trying to homeschool, you know, and, and a lot of moms who barely eat anyway, they're eating the leftovers or kids didn't eat. How do we create kind of a food routine in the midst of all of this change in our life? Actually, I think that's one of the anchors we can have. It's just like an exercise routine. So you say, I'm going to take a walk at this time. And this is when I'm going to sit down and we're actually going to sit at a table and not grab food, not not eat food, if you will, as a passing thing, but actually sit and eat a meal together as a family. Or even if not as a family, we're going to eat at this time, especially if you're, if you're just husband and wife, if you're an empty household, or even just a single person, you want to say, I'm going to have a routine and this is the only times I'm going to eat. Or if I'm going to snack, it's going to be on salad or soup or whatever. I like celery. 
Um, it turns out, um, Regina, so I do get hungry at or do feel like a snack at 3 p.m. And I'll have a uh, a half an ounce or an ounce of walnuts. And, and it's a tradition. So I eat a healthy, something healthy at that time that also um, stops me from being hungry later on. So it is it is what you want to do is establish that routine and understand that food is not entertainment during this period, except you may have a one or two time a week. You know, you may say a brunch on Sunday. Um, so Sunday brunch is, is my wife and my experimental big meal, if you will, because we have time to, to make it and we'll, we'll eat it then. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the real age concept. You know, you sent me a little information before the show, and it seems like with this coronavirus, the majority of the 95% of the ICU cases are 80 and over and or have obesity, type 2 diabetes, asthma or lung issues, hypertension, immune suppression uh, difficulties. So it really matters to stay young all the time on the inside to cut your risk of dying for something like this. So let's talk about your real age. You're 74, but what's your real age on the inside? So my real age, so your real age, you know, I, I, this is when you say what was my detour it was into real age, if you will, from academic medicine or from strong, from traditional academic medicine. So I made real age as academic as we could just because I, that was my history. I was a, I still am a science nerd. If you looked at my, uh, you can look at my office and see the papers behind me, if you will. I don't know if you can see that, but they're stacks of papers. at least, yes. <laughs> um, yeah, they're different subjects. But in any case, the point is your real age is your actual age of your body as opposed to your calendar age. And what we know is that, and this started because of trying to decrease, this is my anesthesia uh, background is trying to decrease complication rates of surgery that every 10 years younger you are, you decrease your complication rate by 67% or you have one third the complication rate and death risk of someone who's 10 years older. If it's 20 years, it's one ninth. So it's really a huge difference because you can make yourself about 20 years younger. So I'm, I am, my real age is around 53 and a half, although I'm 74. So the point is that, and that, by the way, when you think about, uh, the coronavirus, the people who died in the ICU, as we said, had comorbidities. Well, every 10 years changes your risk. So if you're 54, your risk of dying may be 1.4% if you get the coronavirus, as opposed to if you're 74, it's probably around 9%. Huge difference. And that's one of the reasons, I mean, the Cleveland Clinic has done this wonderful thing by incentivizing its employees uh, through the Healthy Choice Program to get, if you will, a normal blood pressure, a normal LDL cholesterol, normal fasting blood sugar, a weight that isn't in the obese range. So those six things that we aim for, that we, that you work through our primary care physicians to get and get an incentive for, reduce your risk of getting any disease really by a huge amount. And that's demonstrated with the coronavirus because it's only people who have those comorbidities that get the serious complications. So 
all of the people in the ICU, the CDC reported 86% of them were either over the age of 80 or had one of those six comorbidities, uh, five comorbidities plus over the age of 80. And the people who died, it was 95% had one of the comorbidities they reported. So that's really important. If you get healthy, you're likely to be able to survive anything, including this. You know, it's interesting you say that because uh, 22 years ago when I had breast cancer and they had to pick out my chemotherapy, they said, since you're healthy, we can hit you hard with really strong chemo. And I remember thinking, what would happen if I wasn't healthy? I might not be here today. I mean, thank goodness I'd been exercising and eating well. But that those words from that oncologist have stayed with me 22 years that I have to stay healthy so that if something does happen, I'm in my best shape. I'm in my best physical shape to fight it. That's exactly right. Not only that, you know, the book I have a, we, I'm writing a book with Albert Ratner and Peter Linneman um, that is coming out next April. So I want people to think about it, but it's called the great age reboot that is cracking the longevity code to live longer, younger today and even younger tomorrow. And the point of that is we're going to get science of longevity is advancing fast enough. Medicine is advancing fast enough that there's at least an 80% chance, Regina, you and I will get to live like we are in this quality of life past 110 and include anyone listening to this who um, is relatively healthy. That's true. If you make it to 2030 or so, the science is advancing fast enough. We already are seeing that in animals where we're extending nematodes lifespan fivefold. Um, I mean, that's really going a long time. But in any case, it is, if you're ready now, we're going to be able to do this and it'll take, we think, much better if you're healthy when it's there. So there's a lot of reason to make your real age as young as possible right now. Um, and and from, from a matter of uh, giving a plug, you can go to realage.com or sharecare.com, bought it from, from us way back when. So you can go to sharecare.com. It's a free app and free test. You can also read uh, Mike's books, Real Age, Are You As Young As You Can Be, The Real Age Diet. I read so many of those. I remember doing the quiz and coming to the conclusion I needed to take better care of me. You know, Mike, I, I think sometimes people take better care of their cars and their body. Like I only put good fuel in my car, but I put junk in me. You know, I never let my car go under half a tank and yet I'll run on empty. So the idea of like, you've written many books with Mehmet Oz, you, the owner's manual. I think sometimes we don't look at our body as kind of like our vehicle that we've got for the rest of our lives. Right. And remember, cars in the 1970s would go about 100,000 miles and tires about 20,000 miles if you were lucky. We've now doubled or tripled that. And we're going to get to do the same thing with our bodies. And that's why you want your body, when you get to redo that, you want that body in as good shape. And that's why, you know, one of the rules of uh, the Ten Commandments is, in fact, that you should only eat food you can have a loving relationship with. That is, food is like a relationship. You, you wouldn't marry someone, Regina, who didn't love you back. You shouldn't eat food that doesn't love your body back. So you may love French fries, but they're going to kill you, something that you don't want to have. So you want to eat only things you love. 
I love avocado. I love salads. I love vegetable soup. You, I love salmon. You want to eat things, and all those things love you back, and you can find things. You know, if I look at my diet in the 1970s, before I knew this, I wasn't doing that because I didn't know that, and I didn't try and find foods that I love. I don't think I ate salmon once in uh, a month back then, and now I eat it probably five times a week. So find foods that you love that love your body back. You know, I've never heard it put that way, and I really love that because as you're talking, I think of, you know, I love strawberries and raspberries, and I think I love Oreos and chocolate ice cream, and yet those two don't love me back when I look at the fat content and the sugar content. So uh, that's a big takeaway for me today, Mike, uh, to eat foods that love you back. It's almost like sometimes we're in a bad relationship with food. We go for the people that don't treat us well. We go for the food that doesn't treat us well back. Right. It, it should be It should be a loving relationship. I like that. That is beautiful. Mike, uh, what's your best way to, to stay in touch with you? I know we can follow you on Facebook, on Twitter at Dr. Mike Oisen, and on Instagram at Dr. Mike Real Agent. Your website for the new book? Is whenway.com. When, W-H-E-N-W-A-Y.com is the, is the uh, website for that book. And uh, we'll, we take questions and we put recipes there. Because, in fact, the, the next book coming out is this one. I don't know if you can see it. It's oh, the, uh, the, what to eat, the What to Eat When Cookbook, and it's beautiful. I mean, National Geo, I don't know if you can see oh, these pictures. Photos. I always want the photo of the meal so I know if it turned out right. It is. It is. They're magnificent photos. So, And um, I should tell you that uh, a third, more than a third of the recipes were made by the executive chef at uh, the Wellness Institute, the Cleveland Clinic, Jim Perko who really is the genius behind uh, the cookbook. That is great. Well, Mike, I'll have links to your website on my website, reginabrett.com. And I got to say, my biggest takeaway today is to really eat foods that love me back. Mike, I want to close with your answer to this question. What is the best thing you do for yourself every day to create a life that you love? Um, It is I get to kiss my wife every morning. So... Actually, the the best thing I do is is uh, the best thing I've ever done is marry Nancy. Oh, that's beautiful. And for all of you, no matter what you heard today, I hope you love your body better today than you did yesterday. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks for listening to Little Detours with Regina Brett. If you want to know more about today's guest and topic, head to my podcast page at reginabrett.com. There you can also subscribe to my email newsletter so you never miss an opportunity to be inspired. For more episodes, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. While you're there, please rate and review my show so we can reach and inspire even more people. Thanks for joining us today. Now go make something possible.